Making the community a healthier place is always at the forefront of what we're doing at the Portage Health Foundation. And one of the ways we're doing that is with the PHF podcast. I'm Michael Babcock, and I host this podcast where we tell the stories of the people, organizations, projects, and events that are focused on improving the health of our community. From meeting the people behind the scenes at our farmers markets, understanding more about our local education, emergency services, nonprofit, or criminal justice systems, you can subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. Simply search Portage Health Foundation. Welcome back to Copper Country Today, brought to you by the Portage Health Foundation. You can learn more about their organization at phfgive.org. I'm Grant Ducetto, joined by Sarah Sikursky, the Refuge Manager for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. She oversees several properties across the upper portion of Michigan. Sarah, why don't we start with your background? Where have you been as far as managing different properties, and how did you get into this? I'm the Refuge Manager. I'm stationed over at Sini National Wildlife Refuge. I've been in this position since the fall of 2014, so over seven years now. And um, I've worked for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service at a few other refuges for over 20 years now. But I will say my first trip to Huron was in the summer of 2015 and I fell in love. What a beautiful, wonderful wildlife refuge it is. How does it compare to some of the other refuges that you've worked at? Well, I think every refuge um, has different and unique attributes and wildlife resources and in a natural setting. And for me, the Great Lakes, Lake Superior is just beautiful with its clear blue waters. And then the Huron has these giant, it's, it's primarily a granite island. So that it rises 160 feet or so above the surface of Lake Superior. And it's covered in boreal forest habitats and um, you can see the, the boulders and rock outcroppings along the perimeter of the island when you get up on top and can look out over the Lake Superior water. So it's just, it's so remote, so far from modern day development that um, it really just in, inspires and, and makes, you can't help but feel connected to the, to the earth and the natural beauty uh, that it, that it, of its setting that it's in. So it's really beautiful. And the lighthouse itself is is beautiful and quite a sense of craftsmanship that you know I haven't seen in any other lighthouse. So, as far still- as the uh, the Sini Wildlife Refuge, what are its borders? It stretches quite a ways, doesn't it? Yes, it's quite a large refuge. So, Sini National Wildlife Refuge is responsible for managing Sini itself, and then the Whitefish Point Unit, which is up on Paradise, and then we also have management responsibility for Huron National Wildlife Refuge, which is over in the Marquette County, west of Marquette. And then we have Harbor Island National Wildlife Refuge, which is off the eastern tip of the Upper Peninsula near Detour. And we also have management responsibilities for part of the Michigan Islands National Wildlife Refuge. So we have four islands in the Beaver Archipelago that we manage as part of that refuge. And we also have management responsibility for the Kirtland Warbler Wildlife Management Area, which is, about 6,700 acre refuge scattered in the northern lower part of Michigan across eight different counties. Is it difficult managing, you know, a little bit here, a little bit there, or is it actually easier than managing a large, say, national forest type deal where you have one giant blob that you're responsible for, one giant region? Well, Sini itself is over 195,000 acres, so it is a large landscape to manage. It is it is difficult, you know, to manage um, the 
the five different refuges and just the diversity it offers of challenges and, and each one is, is quite unique, but that's also what makes it so interesting and fun is that there's such a variety of um, conservation approaches and wildlife management and uh, visitor recreational opportunities. So it's really, you know, it, it presents it presents challenges, but it also presents a lot of opportunities and, and makes our work very rewarding. As far as the actual management, is it all done by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, or are there other agencies that coordinate with you? So the primary responsibility does fall in the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And then we we do work with the partners in, in all, nearly all of those refuges to help accomplish our mission. And so particularly with the Current Lens Warbler Wildlife Management Area, we work very closely with the state of Michigan, the DNR, um, as well as the U.S. Forest Service, because, you know, protecting Kirtland's warbler is larger are, are than just our refuge alone. And the landscapes that they manage um, help, help build on the accomplishments that, to actually uh, benefit the, the species itself. And speaking of the Huron Islands and the lighthouse in particular, when you look at the islands, yes, they're part of Marquette County. But if you look at a map, you go from Lons up to Skeney and then through to Point Abbey and the Abbey Peninsula there. And you're getting pretty close to where those islands are. So even though it's part of Marquette County, it really is um, very close to Barriga County and not too far away, just a you know, stones throw across the bay over to the Copper Country. Are the lighthouses more connected with Marquette, or do you think that they're kind of more connected with the Copper Country? When the Sioux Locks opened up in the mid-1800s, that really opened up the opportunity for commercial vessels. And the Huron Islands was known as the turning point from Marquette to the Keweenaw Bay. And when the Arctic steamer wrecked into the island, north side of the islands in the 1860, uh, that really drew attention to the lighthouse board of how important it was to get some lighthouses up there to help support the growing copper industry and iron ore industry that was happening on the Keweenaw Peninsula. And so um, from that point forward, there, there were a few other shipwrecks that had occurred, but with you know the, the more vessels utilizing that part of the lake to support the commercial industry, uh, it just elevated the need of how important and um, the islands and putting a lighthouse on the island was for for supporting those economic developments. And as far as I'm aware, Abbey Peninsula and also if you go over towards Rabbit Island, which are kind of on either side of, you know, Keweenaw Bay there, they don't have lighthouses. So this is kind of the one point of navigation in that general um, uh, area of Lake Superior. Mm-hmm. And so the Huron islands are actually made up of eight islands. So Lighthouse Island is, or West Huron, is actually the tallest island. So that's why the lighthouse was chosen to be placed on Lighthouse Island. But McIntyre Island or East Huron Island, as well as Cattle, Gull, and then there's four unnamed rock islands that make up the archipelago. So Huron Islands is actually a complex of eight, eight small islands. And does it allow shelter from storms? Is that a place that a lot of ships have maybe uh, looked for a little bit of calm during uh, troubled waters on Lake Superior? We know how angry she can get at times. <laughs> and, and how quickly it can change, you know, weather-wise. So, yes, definitely I, it has a history and is known for the little, on the southwest side of the island, there's a little harbor area, and that's actually where the dock is. There's a concrete dock that's there. 
um, which is the primary access point for getting on and off of the island where boats can tie up. And it, you know, people have claimed, you know, they've used that little harbor area or utilized that dock, you know, or just that's the island itself is from protection of wind and wave action during storms that blow up. So I think um, islands are important for that benefit for anyone out on the seas. I used to work down in Bad Axe, which is in the thumb of the lower peninsula, sticks out in the Lake Huron. And there was an island just off of the shore that was called Charity Island for the very reason that a lot of ships like to use it as protection. So I kind of figured that the Huron Islands might serve a similar function. Yeah. And I always like the name Charity oh, Island. Yeah. yeah, it's a very, very honest name, but also, you know, a fitting yeah. name. So um, yeah. as far as the lighthouse itself on West Huron Island there, um, you're looking to do some restoration on it. And I was looking through the document that you provided earlier this week, and it said that there were essentially four different alternatives, four different paths that the Fish and Wildlife Service looked at. So maybe you could kind of run down each path and, you know, why you chose one option compared to the other three. Absolutely. So for the past few years, we've been exploring the, the best way to try to manage the historic light station. And and we, we presented four different alternatives. Ultimately, you know, the first alternative was no action, of course, just to keep doing what we're doing. But we know from community members and our partners, the Keweenaw Bay Indian community, as well as the Huron Island Lighthouse Preservation Association, um, that no action, you know, is is not going to address the safety and ha human health hazards that are out there. We also looked at preserving uh, all of the buildings, so keeping everything that's part of the historic light station out there. And then we also looked at removing the boathouse, the fog signal building, the barracks, and other infrastructure. And that was originally our preferred alternative, but after our public comment period, we got some new information and helped us realize. Um, that the fog signal building and the tram and turntable are more unique than we realized. And so we developed a fourth alternative and that, that is the plan that we're moving forward with today. And that plan calls for preserving the lighthouse, preserving the assistant keepers quarters, the privy, which is the outdoor restroom or toilet area before modern day plumbing was installed, as well as the fuel house, um, the fog signal building, and we're gonna do a modified rehabilitation to the boathouse where before we were just gonna remove it entirely. So uh, the modified rehabilitation will allow us to keep some of the historic integrity of the boathouse, but also keep its function um, by, you know, people if they do get stranded out there could use it for a shelter out of the rain. Um, and we can also make sure we put some interpretive panels and signage so that people are prepared when they when they arrive on the island and can orient themselves and understanding what they're going to encounter while visiting. And, and so, so that's what we're working. That's what we're interested in is getting, pushing up our sleeves and, and starting to get to work on, on, on the buildings that we've identified to preserve and understanding what work we need to do to bring them up to preservation standards that are established. And um, also starting to, uh, you know, continue to address the hazardous materials that are out there. We had some lead, you know, lead-based paint that was used on, on all of the buildings, you know, that, that are of, of course, that historic age, that was the, the products that they would use at that time. So we want to, we want to remove the lead-based paint on the exterior of the assistant keeper's quarters and the other infrastructure, as well as um, pick up any asbestos, friable asbestos that might be causing potential hazard to visitors who go to the island. 
The structures, when were they put up? So the lighthouse was built in 1868, and the other buildings um, followed and were primarily built in the early 1900s. The latest, the newest building out there is the U.S. Coast Guard Barracks, and that was built in the 1970s. And that is the, or that is the building that we're looking to remove. And as far as the condition of each building, I've seen some pictures, it looks like from, say, 2018, 2019, where maybe the uh, the fog and signal building didn't have any windows in it. What's kind of the current condition of each building right now? Well, we currently have a contract uh, for this summer to have a historic architect go out there and do an assessment of those buildings to help us develop a, a plan of what maintenance needs to occur to bring them up to preservation standards. And so we'll have a better idea of what the priorities are and what specific work needs to be done to, to help us preserve those buildings and meet the plan's intent. The boards were originally installed, you know, at one time because the windows were getting broken out. And so um, we've been trying to take measures to help preserve the historic integrity of the structures. And so that's why the boards are up there so that, um, Unfortunately, you know, we, we occasionally experience vandalism out there. And so we want to make sure we protect the historic structures and so we can get them fully preserved and documented. Well, that makes a uh, kind of an interesting question. You kind of mentioned that you're responsible for all these different, I believe it was five different refuges. How often does somebody from Fish and Wildlife get out to the islands? So typically we, we get out there once or twice a year. Um, the last couple of years, we've been making more frequent visits, but that's also why our partnerships are so important. Uh, we, the Huron Island Lighthouse Preservation Association, as well as the Keweenaw Bay Indian Community Natural and their Natural Resource Department have been very instrumental in helping us make more frequent trips out there, as well as the completion of this, this plan. Now that we know we have some decisions that are made to help guide us and help us balance not only the cultural resource management, but have it work in concert with the wilderness management as well as it being a national wildlife refuge. Uh, we have clear directions on the path forward and, and, and I expect we'll be making more frequent trips out there with all of the work that is anticipated and um, such as doing the lead-based paint abatement as well as the condition assessments on the historic buildings. So I, I anticipate we have some work to do and we'll be making in the next few years and we'll be making more frequent trips out there with the help of our partners. When I lived in Door County, Wisconsin, I have a, I guess, affinity for peninsulas. I started in the thumb of Michigan, then I moved over to Door County. Now I'm back in the Keweenaw, which is actually where I graduated college from. So <laughs> of the last five places <laughs> I've lived, four of them have been on a peninsula. When I lived in Door oh. County, Wisconsin, um, they have a bunch of small islands at the tip. Um, kind of probably fairly similar to the Huron Islands. And I know that Fish and Wildlife managed those islands, and they also had a volunteer group, a nonprofit called the Friends of Plum and Pilot Island, that would go out there and they would do maybe some invasive species cleanup, but they would also do some maintenance on some of the buildings, at least temporary stuff to you know keep the roof from, from uh, exposing the interior to the elements, that kind of stuff. Is there anything like that with the Huron Island Lighthouse Association, that type of partnership between Fish and Wildlife and a nonprofit to make sure that everything is at least being maintained enough that it can survive until more um, uh, comprehensive renovations are done? Absolutely. If people want to get involved, I want to encourage them to reach out to the Huron Island Lighthouse Preservation Association or 
or if tribal members are interested to reach out to their tribal council, they're, um, the Huron Islands Lighthouse Preservation Association and the Kimana Bay Indian community, we're currently going to be developing some more formal agreements, but we're working with them and they're helping us by doing some volunteer activities. This summer, they're going to be helping with tree and brush removal from around the exterior of the buildings, as well as the trail, the historic trail that goes to the to the lighthouse station and then to the northwest part of the island where the fog signal building and tramway is located. So there'll be opportunities from, for some actual hands-on work as well as invasive species. We have some spotted knapweed that showed up a couple years ago in, in a few small patches. And so we'll be pull, they'll be working to pull that in June, late June. So there'll be ways that people can get involved if they're interested. And I would encourage them to reach out to um, Bert Mason is the president of the Huron Islands. Uh, here on Lighthouse Preservation Association. And we obviously have a website here. When this goes up, as far as podcast form, I will make sure to include a link to the Huron Island Lighthouse Preservation Association for anybody interested. Um, as far as invasive species on a rather remote rock island, I'm guessing that comes when people come to visit. It's not something that can get out there otherwise? I believe, yes. Uh, and it it's it started, the patches right behind the boathouse, which has been a popular spot where people um, seem to frequent. Um, and so we're working hard to make sure it doesn't walk its way up the path to the lighthouse. But it, it likely comes in on people's boots or equipment. So if they you know, are setting up picnic area spots or, or doing other things, it's coming off in off of them, off their gear and clothing. Does Fish and Wildlife have an idea of how many visitors head out to the islands on a, say, a yearly basis? We we have a trail counter, so we estimate about a thousand, you know, give or take a few hundred, um, depending on the year. But it's visitation has significantly increased since the since the refuge was established, uh, which was in 1905. And I would guess, I know that visitation is up, you know, across the Upper Peninsula. Just recreational travel in general is up since the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. I would assume that you're expecting a fairly busy 2021 for the Huron Islands? I, I won't be surprised if it is busy. I, I know it'll be busy just from the sense of HILPA will be out there and the Keweenaw Bay Indian community as well as contractors doing some work. Um, but I also do think, as you said, you know, we've seen an increase in people getting outdoors, which is great on all of our public lands. And so I do think it's possible we'll see an increase in visitation. One of the aspects of, of Huron is that it is difficult to get to. You know, people have to have a boat and uh, have to be familiar with navigating like superior waters. And so for that reason alone, I think it won't see as, as marked of an increase of visitation as some of our more accessible public land areas. I know that from Munising all the way over to Marquette and a little bit here in the Copper Country, you know, tourism and, and different services to kind of show off the, you know, beautiful coast are, are plentiful. Do you have any services, any private businesses maybe that make it a point to visit the Huron Islands with guests? So no, currently Huron Islands isn't open to commercial opportunities. So the Huron National Wildlife Refuge is part of the National Wildlife Refuge System, which is a network of lands where our mission is focusing primarily on wildlife first and where we can, where it's compatible with the wildlife resources within a refuge. We do, we do look at public use opportunities. And so people can 
when they come to Huron expect to visit Lighthouse Island. That is the only island that's open to the public. It is open during daylight use only. And um, we like to promote wildlife observation and photography, as well as visiting the historic, the historic structures that make up the light station. And so it's also designated federal wilderness. And I, I know a lot of people don't understand what federal wilderness is, but the Wilderness Act is what regulates um, what can occur on the island. And essentially, you know, it's the most protected public lands in America. It's also relatively large, small percentage of the landscape. And it's managed specifically to protect the full range of wilderness resources. So we're we're balancing this, we're exercising restraint in our stewardship and we're balancing primitive recreational opportunities with the wildlife and, and natural resource values of the island. And so, although it's gonna be free from modern day recreational developments and facilities and infrastructure. And so it's important people are prepared when they go to the island. There's no public rest, there's no restrooms, there's no, there's no electricity or running water. And so, we ask them to tread lightly and, and and pack out what they pack in. And and that also includes um, properly disposing of, of human waste. You know, if, if that happens out there, that's probably the biggest complaint I get is the amount of toilet paper that people see once they walk past the boathouse. And so, you know, that's probably the most important thing people can do to help protect, protect the island and the cultural resources is by respecting them you know, and, and refrain from entering or defacing the buildings, as well as making sure we're not we're not leaving our garbage behind for the next visitor who comes, who wants to experience a place of natural beauty, it's solitude, it's remote, and it is an opportunity to experience history and what life was like for those early lighthouse keepers. So we talked a little bit about some invasive species that might be on the island as far as plants go. Are there any animal problems with the island? I'm thinking of cormorants. When I was in Door County, Wisconsin, Plum and Pilot Island in particular, there was a lot of complaints about cormorants. I know that uh, some islands in that near Duluth and into, you know, off the uh, coast of Minnesota on the western end of Superior have also been trying to maybe cull cormorant populations as much as possible. And that was a point of contention with fish and wildlife. Life. Do you hear complaints at all about uh, cormorants on here on islands or maybe any of the other properties that you manage? No, I, I haven't. Um, cormorants do tend to roost. We've noticed the last few years on the small rock outcropping islands, but th- you know the purpose of the refuge was to for protection of migratory birds. And one of the reasons it was established was for the colonial nesting birds that were utilizing the island. At the time, I think it was a lot of gulls. Um, but I'm sure cormorants are probably a part of that uh, natural community of water birds that nest on islands such as such as Huron. Anything else that we haven't mentioned regarding either the Huron Islands or really kind of, you know, any part of your job that you want to bring up? Maybe ways people can get involved if they want to help volunteer? Yeah, if people are interested, I encourage them to check out the Huron Lighthouse, Huron Lighthouse Preservation Association as well as they can reach out to the refuge and visit our refuge website. They can reach out to me directly as well. I'll give you my email address. And um, again, I just, I want I want people to, to be prepared, you know, that to visiting the island and that um, watch, look at the weather forecast and make sure you bring water and food and, and also make sure you pack it out and uh, let us know if you see problems out there. 
right? We, we definitely could use the help of all the eyes and ears we can get and to making sure that the island continues to be a place people want to, to visit and enjoy while we're there. And while I have you, let's do something that's 180 degrees from what we've been talking about, Sarah. I've been trying to get a guest on to talk about moose pretty much since I got here. I have failed, but from what I've heard, the Sydney Wildlife Refuge, there's at least, especially in the springtime, quite the migration that goes through that area. We have a rather large moose population here in the western UP, and I would love to hear your thoughts, maybe if you've had an encounter or two with the moose and kind of what you think about it. I know you said that you had done some work in Wisconsin, and I believe you got your college degree down in Ohio. From what I remember, there's no moose down that way. We actually don't get a lot of moose sightings. We do have a small number of moose that we believe uh, are part of the, you know, that utilize the Sini National Wildlife Refuge. Most of our sightings come along M28 Highway, but occasionally staff do you see them in parts of the back country when they're out doing work? Um, I've yet to see my, my a moose. I've seen their sign, I've seen their tracks and their scat, but I've yet to see a moose on the CD refuge. So I'm, I'm hoping it happens, but it's not something that's a reg, it's not a regular occurrence. And we certainly get excited when we hear about the sightings. <laughs> well, Sarah Sikursky from U.S. Fish and Wildlife, thank you very much for joining me on Capra Country today. Thank you very much for having me.